Hello and welcome to the Majlis Podcast Radio for your Radio Liberties Current Affairs Talk Show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio for your Radio Liberties Media Manager here in Washington, D.C. Russia's war in Ukraine continues in full swing. Cities are besieged, civilians and military personnel are killed, and the war is affecting nations across the region. And as we speak, it seems there is no apparent breakthrough on the horizon to end the conflict. To that end, for the past two weeks, we have been talking about how this tension is touching Central Asia and Central Asians. We discussed a lot in previous episodes in terms of a short and long-term implications of this tension to the region. So in this week, to avoid repeating ourselves, we decided to look at what happened this week in Central Asia in connection to Russia's war in Ukraine and what does that tell us in terms of the direction of thinking in the region. To do so, I'm joined by Dr. Asel Dulit Kaldiva, senior lecturer at the OSC Academy in Bishkek, Dr. Asil Tutumlu, lecturer at the Department of International Relations and Political Science at the Near East University in Nicosia. Dr. Tutumlu is originally from Kazakhstan. Hamid Ismailov, Radio Free Radio Liberty's regional director for Central Asia, and Bruce Panier, a long-time Central Asia watcher and analyst. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us today on this uh, very important conversation. So this week has been a busy one in the region. Just to put this out there in the, at the beginning. Russia's war in Ukraine remains a topic of high interest in Central Asia on so many levels for so many reasons. This week has been a particularly important one. There were various events commemorating international days and the Ukraine crisis uh, centrally came up uh, in number of them. When I was uh, preparing for this show, I saw two interesting developments coming out of Central Asia today. First is an activist or group of activists launched a virtual flash mob in Kazakhstan under the title of uh, we don't want to be next. Obviously, there is a deep meaning behind what this title is about. We will get to it later. And the second thing is Kyrgyzstan sent tons of aid to Ukraine. Uh, this country is not known for sending a whole bunch of humanitarian aid to war-torn countries that often. It's certainly, you know, a very important development, uh, given last week Kyrgyzstan was in the middle of this conversation for a whole different reasons. And um, over this week, we got messages from Uzbekistan where journalists were summoned for their coverage of Ukraine. Apparently, authorities there are taking a different line. So why not we first kind of recap do those events of the week and, and then we go from there comparing and analyzing those events in the context of evolving reaction of the region to this crisis. So let me first go with the Asel Dolet Kaldiva in Vishkek. Uh, now, we we have two colleagues, both, you know, named Asel, uh, one from Kyrgyzstan and the other from Kazakhstan. So we need to find a way to differentiate you from each other. But uh, let's see, uh, Asel in Vishkek, tell us about the, this aid convoy to Ukraine and uh, how we got here. So, well, Kyrgyzstan has been, I think, collecting humanitarian aid in the past for different countries and for different purposes. And I think uh, this time, not only the authorities, it's a very strong civil society uh, that has been very active historically in Kyrgyzstan. So a lot of activism. And I think um, this is a very good sign because diplomatically, I think there are a lot of pressures on the Kyrgyz government now to choose sides between Russia or Ukraine. And we know very well that uh, the Kyrgyz authorities are in a very difficult position, really, to they cannot really choose sides. Um, so, in that regard, this a sign of goodwill and sending this humanitarian aid, I think, is very important to show also that we're 
and not indifferent to the plight of millions of Ukrainians right now. Mm-hmm. So I still need to find out more about this, the nature of this uh, aid convoy as well. So this was collected by people and sent by people. There is no involvement of the authorities in this. That's how I should understand it? I, I don't know fully the details, uh, mm-hmm. to be honest. I uh, didn't pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. Hamid, do you have any idea? I mean, re- report- Yes, uh, yeah. apart from Kyrgyzstan, uh, so today we reported 40 tons from Kazakhstan Kazakhstan as well of human aid and uh, more interestingly even uh, the other day we've interviewed uh, my Uzbek colleagues interviewed the Ukrainian ambassador to Uzbekistan who told us that Uzbek Pakistan also sent the humanitarian aid and uh, officials were involved in it. It wasn't just the volunteers who were collecting, but the officials and the government was involved in it, according to the ambassador. Hmm. That's interesting. On, on one hand, you see officials are kind of summoning journalists for their coverage of Ukraine. On the other hand, as you just said, Uzbek authorities were part of the aid that went to Ukraine. So how you interpret that position? Uh, they are leaving uh, sort of, you know, both sides open, both channels in a way open. For example, on the first day of the Russian invasion to Ukraine, very famous several writers, including one people's writer of Uzbekistan, they were quoted, you know, in the local newspapers with anti-war sort of, you know, stop the war uh, kind of uh, statements. Yeah. Uh, so. We know that usually if uh, unless, for example, the authorities are not giving green, green light, the people's writers or sort of, you know, prominent writers won't be uh, making these statements. Mm-hmm. So apparently they are leaving both channels open. That's very interesting. And I guess we are referring to the same thing here. Hamid, in the previous conversation last week, we also spoke about the group of people who went to the Ukrainian embassy in Tashkent and sort of tele- casted messages which could be seen as in support of Ukraine and while that was happening just outside the embassy compound there were some people who were taking pictures of those people who came out so it's just kind of interesting dynamic there I mean also in terms of those uh, journalists before I go to other countries I mean just one follow-up question on uh, authorities were summoning journalists for their coverage any thoughts you would like to add briefly on that Uh, Yes, they're keeping everything under control in a way. We are watching and uh, seeing it in all countries. On the the one hand, uh, they are sort of kind of showing some pro-Ukrainian sympathies. For example, for the whole night uh, in the very beginning of the invasion, for example, on Hotel Uzbekistan was projected the flag of Ukraine, for example. It's unimaginable in Uzbekistan, but nonetheless it was there. Or, for example, uh, I'll refer to Asel maybe, from Bishkek, you know, the Kyrgyz authority is fining uh, drivers who put the Z uh, sign on their cars, for example. Mm. Oh, it's yeah. purely, for example, yeah, showing sympathy for the Ukrainian side, yes. Yeah, that was also happening in Kazakhstan. I'm coming to uh, Asal Tutumlu there. Asal, so what kind of events we have seen this week in Kazakhstan? One thing, though, I should mention here, uh, also hinted earlier, the flash mob that our Kazakh service uh, is reporting to 
yesterday that uh, came out in, in support of Ukraine, I guess, in Kazakhstan. So, yeah, in terms of those, you know, reaction of this week with regards to Russia's war in Ukraine, what, what are the highlights that you uh, came across? Thank you. So um, we can we can talk about the uh, this week's events at the societal level, at the government level and at the business level. And I think at the societal level, we have seen a continuation of various aid that has been collected. Mm-hmm. It has been established and collected by, by several prominent, let's say, pu- public intellectuals who have uh, posted the calls mm. uh, on social media. Mm. And uh, uh, the fourth plane with the uh, Kazakh citizens landed in, in Kazakhstan. Um, and when it landed, uh, it was actually a kind of a semi-private affair. Um, and finally, uh, this week, our government basically declared that uh, they will participate in humanitarian aid to mm. Ukraine. Um, so from now on, we would assume that even more goods services um, uh, will be sent, as well as uh, more people may be rescued again uh, going from uh, Lviv to uh, Katowice mm. uh, from Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, government also is in the conversation of establishing alternative routes, uh, particularly through Caucasus in Turkey. We have had uh, uh, almost uh, a sense of panic in the business sector when the Indian oil company uh, refused to buy oil that uh, was coming from Kazakhstan and was mi- mixed in the Navarrezisk port uh, and later on then sold in the international markets because it had Russian mix in it. Um, but uh, from now on, it seems like this situation is uh, relatively clear although it's now a question of transportation. So how are we going to transport oil outside of these particular uh, pipelines? There are two of them. Uh, one is the Tarao Samara, and then another mm. one is Caspian Pipeline Consortium, in which actually in the, in the CPC, um, Russia also has mm. a stake. Yeah. Uh, Russian companies have stake yeah. stakes. So the, that's the big question now, and it's, uh, it's a matter of uh, not only the uh, transportation, the routes themselves, but also the containers, the insurance. These are the questions that are uh, on the agenda, and mm. the companies uh, are pressing the government to basically be much more active in finding and helping and assisting with these alternative routes. The government also allowed the protests against Ukraine. The, it was actually officially allowed, which interesting, it was. It happened right before the, the protests. The large one, right? The large uh, one, like... Before the 8th of March, yeah. yes. And um, uh, and then the government also inserted uh, about half a billion dollars, mm. it's 500 million, million dollars yeah. into the uh, economy to keep the rate of Tenge from falling down. Yeah. Um, so this is at this level of the, of the government, and then uh, you also have the business circles such as the airlines cancelled to Russia because they couldn't insure their airplanes um, and uh, that means that a lot of our people mm. who live and work there and want to come back home got stranded yeah. while we are trying to figure out the alternative transportation yeah. routes uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, how to actually solve the insurance that's the, the problematic. Yeah. Uh, on, on the economic yeah. side, just to reflect on one other development there, you know, Russian airlines also cancelled all flights the way I understand from our Uzbek services reports. Russian airlines also cancelled all the flights to Uzbekistan. In also, Tajikistan's name does not come up often in this, but I guess there is a worries by the migrant workers, which is, uh, you know, I guess rightfully and seriously. So number of flights to Russia are cancelled as well from Tajikistan, the way our Tajik service is reporting, which is supposed to take um, seasonal migrant workers to Russia, so which means lots of trouble ahead for economies of the region, economies of Tajikistan. National currency, uh, the way our Tajik service was reporting, national currencies are also losing value. 
I guess this week, this week on uh, Wednesday, I guess that's the report I'm referring here. On Wednesday, the uh, Taj currency, Somoni, lost 15% of its value against dollar. So that is another kind of struggle that the economies of the region are going to face with the Russian ruble kind of losing its value. What else I had meant? Yo, Bruce, uh, this week... Uh, Turkmenistan is headed to presidential election. Um, in normal uh, situation, this kind of you know crisis just in the backyard in the neighborhood would have been you know top story in the election. Anything coming out, anything noteworthy? Okay, also include to that is Tajikistan. Anything noteworthy from these two countries with regards to crisis in Ukraine? I suppose the only way those two countries compare to one another uh, that they don't say anything at all, the governments anyway, about what's going on. You know, in Turkmenistan's case, yeah, they have the presidential election, which probably wouldn't have generated that much international interest anyway, except for the oddity of Turkmenistan itself. You know, they're, they've stuck with that, that policy of positive neutrality for all these years, and in moments like this, it serves them well. You know, certainly they can just say we engage in this kind of stuff and, you know, we're not going to get a, pick any side because we never pick a side in anything. You know, now, now unofficially, of course, Russia has a lot of a lot of influence in Turkmenistan. And one would imagine, especially at a time during succession, that they're probably backing Russia in the hopes that Russia backs them. They need Russian support for the succession. Dissimilarly in Tajikistan, pretty much the same situation. I mean, one of the reasons they're probably real quiet about this whether they approve it or not, the fact is without Russian support, they can't do their own dynastic succession, which seems to be in the works at the moment. But, you know, but, but other than that, the two countries really don't compare that well. You know, as I mentioned, Tajikistan is so dependent on remittances from Russia anyway that, um, you know, this is a disaster for them. I mean, I've seen some early reports that say minimum 33% reduction in remittances. And this is like what happened in 2015, 2016, when the price of oil started to bottom out too, where you actually have more, more remittances coming back. Back. More people sending remittances back, but the money is worth so much less that it comes to a lot less than it is. But you're right in pointing out that, that even getting there this year by plane, anyway, it seems like it's going to be impossible for a lot of people. You know, so it, it's a big question how many people are even going to be able, even if they wanted to, how many people are going to be able to actually physically get there, you know, and, and to do jobs. And then there's a question of are there jobs waiting for them? Also, in some of these one thing is getting there, Bruce. The second thing is we also heard this week um, that many people, because of the understandably the economic situation in Russia is, is not good. So many migrant workers, even even some Russians we heard coming to Central Asia. I know perhaps we don't have exact number, the scope and size of this migration, but any anything to add on that? Well, I mean, they're two separate groups. The returning, the migrant laborers that would be in Russia if there were an opportunity coming back, of course, that, that's a huge problem. There's, there's nothing waiting for them back in their home countries, either in Central Asia. I mean, that's the reason they were going to Russia was to get work. Um, so it's going to be tough. And, and plus, we know that there's still a drought situation going on. So there's going to be limited resources coming up on top of that, too. And the people have been predicting for years that the potential for destabilization in Central Asia, if the migrant laborers started coming home, is, is huge. So, you know, there, there's that. That's going to be a big concern for the local government. So as far as the Russians coming back, you know, that's probably less immediately harmful to the countries, although it, it's going to be a strange situation. One, it represents a strange influx of population all of a sudden. Uh, but who are these Russians exactly? Is is Russia's brain drain going to be a 
benefit to Central Asia in some way? You don't know. But if they come and they have money and they start buying stuff out there, especially like apartments, you know, and everything, maybe some of them can afford it. Then they're going to be resented for spending money and driving up the prices of, of goods. And, and really, like I said, in a year that promises to be a year of scarce resources, there might be a lot of resentment that they that by the local people that they have to compete for those resources with all these people coming from Russia. I, I, um, so, I, I also wondered how big a story is this? I mean, perhaps uh, Asil uh, Dulut Kaldio, you are in Kyrgyzstan. You know, there, there are reportings about this that like Russians, Russian Russians, they are coming to Central Asia. How is the scene from from the region where you are sitting, from local mm. perspective. Yes, correct. We've been hearing reports in the mass media. There were already some interviews taken with the, the Russians from Russia. There are also kind of um, how they call them the monologues uh, of these uh, people, and also simply informal stories from friends of friends and relatives. So it, for the moment, it's very difficult to draw a picture of uh, how many people we're talking about, right? Mm. And I think Kyrgyzstan is really the the list of the recipients of the Russians from Russia. I think um, on the first front to uh, receive these people flying from the Putin's regime are Armenia and Georgia, and mm. then I, I would think Kazakhstan. And uh, Kyrgyzstan is less so also for quite an objective reason, because by now uh, the, um, kind of the Slavic mi- minority in Kyrgyzstan is only um, less than 10%. Uh, there are many, a few Russian families left in Kyrgyzstan. And that's why probably this also explains uh, why there are fewer Russians coming now to Kyrgyzstan. Mm. So from what uh, we gather from uh, informal stories, but also the um, mass media reports, it is, these are people from liberal professions mm. who can conduct their work of, of online. Mm. Yeah, some kind of IT people. Uh, designers, some lawyers who can work online. So those people who are in a more privileged position to leave Russia currently. So I think it will be very important to follow those stories. I think it's for them it's very difficult also themselves to plan anything and that's what they've been telling that they're not really intending to stay um, in these countries. Mm. They view um, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan more as a transit zone to then further migrate somewhere else or to return to Russia. So it's very difficult actually right now to analyze and predict mm, right. whether this would mean anything in terms of investment into mm. local tourism services, mm. even estate. So I think it's for the moment too early to, to tell anything about right. that. Right, right. So I think Russians from Russia who are now coming to uh, Central Asia and Caucasus, they're very much preoccupied about Russophobia. So I see this in a chat um, and a kind of in a um, uh, social media. Mm. But I think, um, of course, we have our own history of kind of amical but also estranged relationships with Russia because there is a lot of uh, xenophobia and nationalism in Russia and a lot of migrants have suffered um, in Russia so but I don't think that this uh, really poses a problem mm. with nationalism mm. in uh, in Kyrgyzstan yeah, towards that, those Russians. That also kind of brings me to another event that I almost forgot to mention here the Russian politician politicians comment uh, about Kazakhstan I forgot the name of that person now who was that? Yeah. He has been he has been saying something interesting, something strange. Asel Tutumlu, do you want to comment before we move on? Sure. Well, basically, uh, Zuganov decided to revive the the old trope that has been picked up by various politicians, uh, starting from Zhirinovsky to people in in Russian Duma, hmm. that basically assumes or tries to to show uh, that statehood was uh, gifted uh, by Russia to Kazakhstan. 
Kazakhstan, and therefore without Russia, Kazakhstan wouldn't exist uh, as a sovereign entity. Uh, so that uh, basically uh, provides uh, not only an opportunity for Kazakh nationalists to, to revive their claim that uh, we need to basically get, get out of all the links and cut all the links with Russia, uh, but also gives uh, an opportunity for people who are studying or approaching the region from geopolitical perspective to say that, wow, Russia did exactly that in Ossetia, it did exactly that in uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, and so Kazakhstan, therefore, will be next. So that's that's basically uh, the uh, where we are. So it's mm. uh, it established, this type, this type of statements create uh, a fear and a kind of a genuine concern and speci- uh, among Especially the these days, especially these days, right? Just a, exactly. you know, just a week ago, I guess, there was a President Putin's comment referring to historic Russian lands. I mean, when you put all these comments together, uh, along with the tension in Ukraine, you know, it, it could sound scary to some people. So I'm, I'm sure we have missed points here and there in terms of what has been happening this week in Central Asia with regards to Ukraine crisis. I will ask uh, perhaps Hamid to reflect on what we might have missed just in a minute. But here, I want to devote some time to compare the the reaction from this week to the previous weeks in Central Asia and try to kind of read tea leaves in terms of any changes in this or the other way in the direction of thinking in Central Asia about this crisis. So we will continue the conversation talking about this and many other questions very shortly. First, let me recap uh, the debate here on today's Majlid podcast. I'm joined by Dr. Asel Dulit Keldiva, senior lecturer at the OSC Academy in Bishkek. Dr. Asel Tutumlu, lecturer at the Department of International Relations and Political Science at the Near East University in Nicosia in Northern Cyprus. Hamid Ismailov, Radio Free Europe, the Liberties Regional Director for Central Asia in Bruce Panier, longtime Central Asia researcher and analyst. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free Europe. Liberties Media Manager here in Washington, D.C., and we are discussing, sort of recapping the events of this week in Central Asia with regards to Russia's war in Ukraine. So, uh, Hamid, did we miss anything, like uh, in terms of this week's events, reactions from Central Asia? That should Maybe be a couple of things mm-hmm. to mention here. One mm-hmm. is that uh, Russia introduced the, because of, you know, in Russia, you can uh, sell dollars now, but, uh, you can't buy dollars which affects uh, millions of migrants, especially Central Asian migrants. Usually, Central Asian migrants, they send back home remittances in U.S. dollars. Now they are obliged either to sort of buy these dollars somewhere in the black market and being sort of, you know, subject of criminal cases or uh, sent in rubles. Mm. And with the falling ruble, it becomes quite, quite sort of, you know, a hard thing to sustain because the level of remittances to the countries, one Mm. of the things. Another thing, sort of factual thing which has happened uh, this week is that uh, Russia suspended export of wheat to uh, Eurasian Union countries. Whereas, for example, Kyrgyzstan depends on uh, Russian wheat, uh, 50% of the exports of the uh, imports of Kyrgyzstan in wheat comes from Russia. So 
That is very important thing. If they don't sell wheat and grain to other countries where, for example, Central Asian countries are going to find sort of wheat, it immediately affected, for example, the markets in Tajikistan. Today, for example, the sale of the flour was suspended in Tajikistan because there is no flour and it was too expensive to buy the flour. So authorities decided all in all to suspend the flour sales. So these are maybe news we should sort of take uh, more caution and more attention to cover those news. And keep our eyes on going forward. I mean, what I was was also just adding here is like so far we have been talking about events in Central Asia with regards to crisis in Ukraine. So there are some events in Russia that which is also in part of this crisis that are affecting Central Asia. So Hamid's point from that perspective was very, very important. So yeah, go ahead. Please. Yes, so I, I also wanted to state that um, uh, Russia suspended the sale not only of wheat, but also sugar mm-hmm. and uh, a bunch of other goods. Um, so that I mean, it questions the whole rationale for the Eurasian mm-hmm. Economic Union, since we are imposing this restriction to uh, what was supposed to be the common market. In addition to that, uh, Russia is also restricting the sale of of various goods including fertilizers for example and uh, this maybe also will have a certain long-term effect i also wanted to draw attention to the uh, to the fact that uh, kazakhstan adopted the law or is about to adopt the law on social media Uh, which uh, basically will allow the regime to erase uh, whatever post they don't like uh, without the court order. And I think this is a very big deal. It's uh, passed the second reading in our majlis and is going to the Senate, uh, which will be then after approval moved to Mm. approval of the uh, or signing of the the president. And I think this is a very important, but also... uh, it's an important event, but also something that we we kind of used to during the crisis. We usually have these uh, bills that that pop up during COVID. We've had uh, various bills undemo- with undemocratic content wow. being passed, and this is another one. Yeah. yeah. So this is something that we we have to watch. Certainly, we have seen over over the past week. Um, Russia has been taking lots of you know steps to curb you know online activities, banning you know Facebook, uh, Twitter, and all the other media platforms. Of course, you know, lots of media organizations were forced to suspend their operation, local presence in Russia because of those restrictive measures. So that is another kind of consequences that we are seeing. On that context, perhaps, Hamid, you could uh, also just briefly, very briefly, if you can tell us about these Russia is taking all these drastic measures in terms of controlling information landscape there. And there has been we have seen steps by some of the Central Asian countries, summoning journalists and things like that. Are your reporters in Central not Russia at this stage, in Central Asia, are feeling any pain, anything with regards to their reporting of Ukraine crisis. Has there been any implications for your colleagues there on the ground? So, uh, in the places where we have our bureaus in Kazakhstan, in Kyrgyzstan, in uh, Tajikistan, so far we were able to report all these protests. For example, in Kazakhstan, there were numbers of protests during the 8th of March, for example. Later, there were several protests which we were reporting directly from the place, from the ground. So, there was no interference. We were allowed to report all of that. But because we are reporting the majority of the events from the grounds, I mean, from the from um, uh, you know the uh, invasion of Russian uh, forces to Ukraine, mostly from Prague 
So we're not feeling yet, but uh, what we are feeling that the uh, grade of the sort of, you know, Russian propaganda mm. is heated up, you know, and lots of people in our part of the world as well, you know, especially the older generation are quite brainwashed. Mm. It's, uh, uh, it's very hard to say about that one, but unfortunately, we're feeling that lots of supporters of, we're seeing it on social Social media, for example, it's less uh, young population, but the sort of older population. Right, right. Yeah, we also need to be really wrapping up the conversation. It is, it must be late there in Central Asia for our uh, colleagues participating from there. So just to move on, you know, I have one more question to raise, and I know everyone will have uh, you know opinion to add into this. And what I had in mind was we have discussed these events in Central Asia with regards to crisis in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine. Maybe Bruce and uh, Asal, let me uh, take your points on this. How these these events? the local events reactions of this week is compared to what we have seen what we have witnessed in the past weeks let's start with Asel Dulat Kaldiva and Bishkek and then uh, Bruce your pa- ta- thoughts on that well um, no, what, what, Asel, think... just to add one more point in that I mean what I'm trying to really understand here in terms of has there been any change and uh, well, in the direction yes, of people's thinking uh, Sure, because I think uh, we were all shocked in the beginning and trying to understand uh, to digest these events. Mm. And then slowly came this kind of the, the horror of this whole situation. And now we're trying to understand how this is going to impact our economies in mm. Central Asia, mm. right? So uh, there is more and more voices mm. like from um, economic elites, from political elites, from civil society mm. who are raising the issues in their sectors. Mm. So, for example, not only there is a problems with the fertilizer, mm. Which of course going to hit negatively impact the upcoming spring season, and our societies are quite agricultural societies, so they're going to be quite a crisis there as well. But there is also the problem with credits because mm. all our societies run on credits, mm. right? Mm. So it's a household credits, it's a microfinance credits, and so they are all taken in dollars, but they the people earn in local currencies, which are today devalued. So all these issues this week became much more clearer mm. so we have much more clear picture which of course going to evolve with time so next week there's going to be many more other uh, challenges coming up and probably also we will see more clear positions of the government to respond to these challenges right Bruce what's your thought on that I mean I, I know uh, other colleagues might also have some something to add in this but uh, you know what we really need to move on to wrap up the conversation here so what I'm kind of trying to understand here is you know this uh, comparison between events of this week reactions of this week in Central Asia uh, with regards to uh, crisis in Ukraine compared to the previous weeks that we have discussed in our previous Majlis podcasts is there any anything that you are watching in terms of shifting dynamics in terms of the direction of thinking in Central Asia with regards to Ukraine. In the meantime, on the back of my mind, I'm also thinking, I mean, these horrific pictures that we are seeing coming out of Ukraine, I mean, it touches everyone's heart. Is this making any difference in terms of the people's reaction? You know, I don't know how many images they get of Ukraine. That would would be an interesting question to know exactly what kind of stuff they're getting. I imagine in places like Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, it's probably a lot easier. In the other three southern Central Asian states, you know, I don't know what kind of images they're actually seeing from Ukraine. But as far as what 
change in the last week. I, I'm going to sell from currently warm Cyprus. Might know more about this than me, but Kazakhstan seems to be the one that really has, is showing a lot more what its position is on this, and not the Kazakh government, but the fact that you know we talked about the March 8th protest and we talked about the humanitarian aid that just got sent to Ukraine today, and so you know none of this can happen without the Kazakh government allowing it to happen you know even the demonstration which was technically was international women's yeah. day but the fact that they let this go without you know with the pro-ukrainian ralliers out there too without anybody being detained and the fact that they you know that they're let sending humanitarian aid which that's was actually announced on that's kazakhstan embassy's website in brussels shows that the government is, is on board with this mm -hmm. they're not directly connected with it so they don't they can't get blamed for it but it shows that that this is kind of their position and so that that was, I thought, the most interesting development of the week as far as what the governments are thinking and the ways the mm. societies are moving um, as this is happening is that Kazakhstan seems to be a lot more leaning toward the, for very good reasons, which we mentioned at the start, that they're, mm. they're leaning toward Ukraine because they see themselves as being possibly the next victim of something very similar. Right. And also last week uh, when we were talking about events in Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan was entirely being discussed on with regards to this war in a, in a different ways. Like what was that? U Ukraine was recalling its ambassador from Kyrgyzstan because Kyrgyz president had said something in his conversation to Vladimir Putin, which kind of hurt Ukrainians. Now this week we see aid convoy is going to Ukraine. It's a, a lots of change uh, the way I see it. And also I didn't know about this earlier Hamid mentioned the Uzbekistan hotel this iconic hotel in Tashkent where Ukrainian flag was projected I could not imagine that uh, coming out of Tashkent but that's uh, that's also two other signs we really need to wrap up the conversation just one more quick point maybe Hamid and Asal Tutumlu um, so it's an evolving situation not only in Ukraine and Russia but also in Central Asia the way people are reacting to it so where your eyes are going to be in the next week what we will be talking about next week what will be the indicators where the discussion is going from here in Central Asia. Let's start with maybe with Asal and then Hamid with that we will conclude the conversation. Sure. So um, for me what would be important is uh, the situation and the decisions made by the Russian government because that will have direct impact on uh, the economic uh, situation of, of our businesses as well. I think uh, just to add our businesses this week started to realize the, the amount of loss that they can potentially face particularly uh, since they are re-examining the value chains and, and the project cycles. So they are really trying to understand what can be the potential loss and uh, trying to reroute and really drastically look for opportunities. So whether or not the government is going to listen to them or support them, that's where my eyes will be. Uh, just to, to, to correct Bruce, the protest against Ukraine was a separate protest, which government allowed to happen officially. Uh, and it was right before the, the protest of the 8th of March. So that's uh, already a sign of the fact that, yes, government is leaning towards pro-Ukrainian side and um, is looking to, to ensure to have this kind of a balanced position. Mm. I'm also expecting uh, the government to change potentially not only the thinking, but the, the wording to call the, the war. It may not call it an, a Russian aggression, but it may call a war. Interesting. war. Interesting. So that's where it is. But oh. uh, my and, and obviously domestically, my concern would be on this law, on the social media. Mm -hmm. I mean, and just in one or two Asil said yeah. everything, so she uh, liberated me from the, uh, <laughs> from this task. But in a longer in a longer term, what's interesting to look, especially taking the Turkmen case when they decided to become the part of the Turkic Union, 
there is this movement towards the Turkic Union and why that Central Asian countries might become proxy NATO, sort of, if uh, Turkey is in union with Central Asians, but Turkey is the part of NATO, so they might be feeling uh, sort of proxy NATO protection. Mm, very interesting to watch the Turkish move uh, after this stage as well. But uh, in the meantime, I, I guess sometime when I watch Turkish television, I don't know if Turks know where their position is in this country conflict or in, in NATO. Uh, also, we should be watching what China does going forward. So there are a lot to keep our eyes on. But here we have to conclude the conversation, but we will come back to it hopefully next week to continue the conversation. So thank you very much, Dr. Asal Dulut Keldibia, Senior Lecturer at the OC Academy in Bishkek, Dr. Asal Tutumlo, Lecturer at the Department of International Relations and Political Science at the Near East University in Nicosia, and Asal is originally from Kazakhstan. Hamid Ismailov, Radio Free the Liberty's regional director for Central Asia and Bruce Panier, long-time Central Asia analyst. Thank you very much, colleagues, for joining us today. And this is it from me, Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis Ready for the Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. Until next week, bye-bye.